smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. A warning, this episode contains language and depictions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. The door was open for me to become an informant. Months before Keith Lamar is indicted for killing five men during the Lucasville uprising, he says he's given an opportunity to work with investigators. An opportunity he has no interest in taking. I told him to get the fuck out of my face. The investigator said to me, you, you, you know, like, are you insane? This is a sweetheart deal. This is not a sweetheart deal if I'm innocent. But come on, kid. If you don't accept this deal, I'm here to tell you that we're going to put your black ass on death row. I said, I want a trial. If you want a trial, we're going to give you a trial. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer, Episode 4, Duck Your Head and Full Speed Ahead. In 1994, Keith is charged with nine counts of aggravated murder for the deaths of Daryl DePina, Albert Steano, William Savetti, Bruce Vitale, and Dennis Weaver. His attorneys will have around nine months to prepare for trial. You believed in Keith's innocence. Yes. Yes, I still do. That's Herman Carson, one of Keith's 1995 trial lawyers. I wonder what Bob Toy, Keith's other trial attorney, thinks, or if he ever asked Keith if he did it. You know, when I deal with a criminal case, I look at the evidence that the prosecutor has. Can they prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? I don't ask my clients if they're guilty. I, quite frankly, don't give a shit. I get why Bob, as a defense attorney, didn't ask. But I'm not Bob. So I'm just going to ask you, did you kill Dennis Weaver? No, I did. Did you kill Daryl DePina? No, I did. Did you kill Albert Steano? No, I did. Did you kill William Savetti? No. Did you kill Bruce Vitale? 
No. I can imagine what you're thinking. I shouldn't have to answer that. I mean, I don't think it's unfair to be asked these questions. Of course it's fair. If we're trying to arrive at the truth, it's the only way to arrive at the truth is to ask these hard questions. I've been defending myself from day one. Keith answers my questions. Now I'm going to answer one of his. When I visited Keith, he asked me to look into the possibility the men he's accused of killing were not actually snitches, but child molesters and rapists. Because if they were, then what? Maybe that would point to a different motive for why they were murdered? Or maybe the snitches label was simply concocted so they would appear more sympathetic to jurors? And look, there's no way for me to really find out if they were snitches or not, but I was able to find their criminal records. So a couple of them had kidnapping and rape charges, but for the most part, they were like murder, felonious assault, arson, robbery. There was mm-hmm. one, one guy who, hold on, let me look. There was one guy who was in at Lucasville for kidnapping and rape. That was in mm-hmm. ni- 1983. And he had been charged with um, raping a 12-year-old and a 19-year-old back in 1977. I'm not sure if he was convicted. I just saw that he was charged. So what do you make of that? Well, no, that was just a speculation. I, you know, the thing that always struck me about the narrative is that, you know, the state said that they were stitches and everybody just ran with that. You know, because if they, um, if their actual record was introduced, maybe it would prejudice the jury against, you know, caring or uh, having sympathy for them that they had lost their lives in this real horrific way. I just don't want to accept without um, um, questioning anything the state has to say in terms of narrative and framing the situation, you know. There's someone else who might be able to shed some light on this. Former Lucasville warden, Arthur Tate. Do you know if the guys, the inmates who were killed, were they snitches? Um, I don't know. Savetti, I would say absolutely not. Now, I, and this is what I was told about Savetti, and I don't know if this is true. I don't know if you've heard a story similar or contrary or whatever, but Savetti, I mean, I knew him personally. He's an older gentleman. He walked with a walker. And any time that he saw me in the hallway, he would chase me down. And he had something to bitch me about. Um, the information that I got was that when the offenders that got the keys, they were African-American guys, and they started keying the console, and his door popped open, and he came out and saw them at the console and made the comment, what are you in, guys, using the N-word? What are you doing? And they went right down and killed him. That's the word I got. That's how he got killed. I don't believe he was a snitch, but there were a couple inmates that were involved in the snitch game that were killed. I can't recall their names. So maybe William Savetti wasn't a snitch, but maybe some of the others were. I don't think we'll ever know. I'm not even sure it matters. It doesn't change anything for Keith. In the months leading up to Keith's trial, 
One of Bob and Herman's first orders of business is to get it moved from Scioto County, where Lucasville is located, to somewhere less potentially prejudicial. Here's Bob. We asked for a change of venue and it was granted, although granting it by moving it to the next county where most of the people work in Lucasville or are associated with it didn't really help much. The trial will be held 38 miles from Lucasville in Ironton, Ohio. That's in Lawrence County, the most southern county in the state of Ohio. The demographics there are similar to Scioto County, well over 90% white. Presiding over the case will be Judge Fred Crow III. Judge Crow was 50 years old at the time of the trial. Today, he's 77 and retired. I talk with him over Zoom. Did you, in your years of being a judge, have a certain reputation? Yeah, I kind of did. Uh, I actually had a song written about me, Hanging Judge Crow. That was the song, and that was a reputation among most of the attorneys. They knew I was a strong advocate for law enforcement. Hanging Judge Crow, like hanging people, or what, what did they Yeah, it, it was a comedy-type song a friend of mine wrote. Judge Fred Crow comes from a long line of law and order. His grandfather was a judge, his dad an FBI agent. Keith's attorney, Bob Toy, knows Judge Crow well. He's argued many cases in front of him over the years. Oh, he's something else. He was definitely pro-prosecution. Uh, there's no question about it. It's very simple in Judge Crow's court. Uh, when you get convicted, you're going to get the max from him and you're going to get the death penalty. That's just like a given. So if the prosecutor gives you an offer and you have a bad case, you might want to take it. The prosecutors who will be presenting the state's case are Seth Teeger and Bill Anderson. They were aggressive prosecutors. They come from Hamilton County. It's a tough county to commit a crime in. They were very aggressive. They were smart. So... The teams are in place, the venue is set, but before they can get to jury selection, there are the pre-trial motions, lots of them, mostly surrounding discovery, what evidence the prosecution has, and what the defense wants them to hand over. This is going to be a real sticking point in Keith's case. Here's Herman. We were asking for what's called Brady material. Anything that's favorable or exculpatory to the defendant, they're required to turn over to the defense. And so anything basically contradicted the state's theory of the case, and of course they weren't going to give that to us. And just to be clear, did you have access to the Ohio State Highway Patrol's database of interviews? No. Did the prosecution? Oh yeah, they had everything integrated. So... There presumably are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of interviews, transcripts that you were never given. Correct. In episode two, I talked with Kenneth Marshall from the Ohio State Highway Patrol. He estimated the number of interviews they conducted was around 1,200, which is a lot of interviews. I actually got my hands on the index, and while yes, there were around 12, 1,300 interviews conducted, what's more surprising to me is how many times people were interviewed. Some are interviewed once, some twice. Some are interviewed five, six, eight times. There's one guy who's interviewed 11 times and another who's interviewed 12 times. 
How did that strike you that these men were interviewed so many times? Well, I've seen ones where they have had multiple interviews, nothing like this scope. But, you know, this whole situation is about as non-standard as it comes. The scope of the area where things happened, uh, the number of individuals that could be directly or indirectly or just peripherally involved. You know, there's just nothing comparable to this case in my experience. Here's Bob. This was not a normal case. This was the case where all the politicians were involved. This was the primary case in the state of Ohio, and it rose to that level because of the unfortunate death of Mr. Vallanahan, who was the guard there, uh, that had nothing to do with Key's case. After the uprising, around 50 people are charged with crimes like murder, attempted murder, and assault. Five are capital murder cases, meaning they're facing the death penalty, Keith being one of them. He is charged with killing more people than anyone else during the uprising, and he's the only one facing the death penalty for killing only prisoners. The other four death penalty cases surround the murders of a few prisoners and Officer Robert Vallandingham. Back to Bob and Herman. They believe they're getting the constant runaround from the prosecutors and Judge Crow when it comes to their repeated requests for exculpatory evidence. Then, a few weeks before the start of the trial, prosecutors hand over to the defense a list of 43 prisoners' names and 11 pages of statement summaries containing potentially favorable evidence. But there's a major hitch. Prosecutors won't match up the names with the statements. It will be up to Bob and Herman to try to figure out who said what. So the prosecution said, basically, we promised these guys anonymity, and that's why we can't match up the statements with the names. That's total horseshit. Outrageous. I mean, that's ridiculous. It would never be allowed today. It's now June 12th, 1995, the first day of jury selection. Before the potential jurors are brought into the courtroom, prosecutors offer Keith a plea deal. When Keith gave the final no to a negotiated resolution, as I walked out of that conference room to tell the judge and the prosecutor, and we had the jury sitting out there getting ready to do jury selection, it's probably the worst feeling I've ever had in my stomach because I I didn't know if I could save Keith's life. That must have been... Well, like I say, I've never felt that it's the worst I've ever felt. Did you give Keith any sort of pep talk? Duck your head and full speed ahead. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. 
Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. What was going to be the biggest challenge in representing Keith? To try to find jurors who didn't automatically, when they heard Lucasville, say guilty. That's Herman Carson. He and his co-counsel, Bob Toy, along with prosecutors Seth Teeger and Bill Anderson, spend several days interviewing potential jurors. After two black jurors are excused, they settle on 10 women and two men. Well, the jury was all white, mostly high school graduates. You know, working class, I say, just a typical rural county jury. Here's Bob Toy. Keith is sitting next to me, and he looked at me, and he said, Bob, I thought I was supposed to have a jury of my peers. And I looked around the room. I saw the white judge. I saw his white lawyers. I saw the white prosecutor. saw the white jurors. And I said, oh, Keith, baby, this is it. It's terrible. Here's Judge Fred Crow. Back then, there was several big issues about blacks being excluded for whatever. Basically, the prosecutors had to have a reason to excuse a uh, black juror. I don't remember if, uh, how many black jurors there were, if any. I can't tell There, There weren't any. It was an all-white jury. Okay. So now I know, or now I remember, Lawrence County would be like other counties down there. The percentage of blacks is not that bad. I mean, yeah. Wait a minute, I want to tell you something. Sure. And then they none of anybody's business, but I just got off the phone. Well, I was on the phone when you called half an hour. I was, I had a uh, halfback on my ball team, uh, high school ball team, who was black, was just called and told me he's getting divorced and he's 78 years old. So, uh, at least I have one black friend. <laughs> it's June 20th, 1995. The jury is seated. 
the prosecution begins their case. The first witness they call is Sergeant Howard Hudson, one of the investigators with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. According to the trial transcripts, Sergeant Hudson testifies that as part of their initial search and processing of the crime scene, there were around 7,500 photographs taken and over 20,000 pieces of evidence collected. When asked if any of the physical evidence collected pointed to Keith Lamar, Sergeant Hudson says, quote, There was no evidence that came back conclusive that pointed to anybody. The evidence was largely contaminated. Sergeant Hudson also says that after a certain number of people were interviewed, he, along with others, decided to charge Keith Lamar with these killings. I remember a Sergeant Hudson who I called Sergeant Zero because he had zero evidence. A nice guy, but they really had no evidence besides a bunch of snitches against Keith. It's just that simple. So with no physical evidence, Bob and Herman say the prosecution's case hinges on the testimony of fellow prisoners. What did all of those witnesses have in common? Well, they had done uh, or participated to some level in the riot and weren't being prosecuted for it. Two of them maybe did have some minor charges filed, but no ways near what they did. According to the trial transcripts, some witnesses receive lesser sentences. It seems one witness is charged with the murder, then those charges are dropped. And another witness is never charged at all, although he admits to taking part in at least one of the killings, one of the same Keith is on trial for. It was people who were paid to testify, paid by getting lesser sentence and, you know, acquiring their testimony. It's what happened. Nevertheless, there are five men who testify that Keith was involved in the L6 murders. All describe, in varying degrees of detail, how Keith ordered, and in some cases took part in the killings of the so-called snitches with the help of his death squad. One of those death squad members is Lewis Jones, also one of the prosecution's star witnesses. On the stand, Lewis Jones claims when he, Keith, and another guy went inside L Block to check on their belongings and then got stuck there, Keith came up with the idea of how they could get back out to the yard. I asked Keith about this. Lewis Jones testified that you turned to him and said, hey, there's no point in us being caught up in this. Let's kill the snitches and then we can leave. It doesn't follow logically, you know, let's... We don't want to have anything to do with the riot, so let's kill people and so we can be implicated in the riot, you know. And that's another thing, too. If, if, if I was responsible for the five deaths, why let me leave? Because somebody would be, would be, you know, left holding the bag. You know, we're going to let you kill these five people and we're going to let you leave. You know, because when this, at some point, this had to come to the end. They, they wasn't intending for the ride to last forever. So at some point, somebody got to answer for these deaths. So why let the guy who's responsible for these deaths just get up and walk out and leave? To leave us having to explain. Yeah, you know, but none of those questions were asked. None of those, uh, uh, none of those discrepancies were put to the jury. According to that Ohio State Highway Patrol index of interviews, Lewis Jones was interviewed 11 times. After his initial statement, he was moved to another prison, closer to his family in Cleveland. 
And although Lewis Jones admitted to taking part in at least one of the killings, Jones was never indicted for anything that happened during the uprising and is now out of prison. I'd like to hear Jones's version of events and have tried to track him down with no luck. Next on the stand are three men who were in that K-block cell where Dennis Weaver was murdered. They all say, again, in varying degrees of detail, that Keith accused Weaver of being a snitch, then Keith ordered for Weaver to be killed. Michael Childers, one of the men who helped choke Weaver to death, testifies that Keith threatened his life if he didn't jump in and help finish the job. On the stand... Childers calls Keith, quote, an animal. On cross-examination, Childers is asked about a letter he wrote to prison officials not long after the uprising, in which he said the FBI had implanted a mini microphone under his scalp back in 1986. Childers first says he doesn't recall the letter, then he denies it altogether. Here's Herman. Well, it raises serious questions of the competency and the veracity of what weight can you give to somebody who believes that he's had a chip implanted in his brain and people are talking to him through it or communicating with him uh, through that. As part of his plea deal, Michael Childers pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter and is sentenced five to 25 years to run concurrent with the one he was already serving, meaning no time is added to his sentence. It seems Childers is no longer incarcerated. I've reached out to who I believe is him, but have yet to hear back. Were any of the state's witnesses believable? Not in my opinion, no. I mean, yeah, they just weren't, in my opinion. I mean, the death squad initially, nobody's identifying him, and all of a sudden they're identifying him. I... You know, felt that they were lying and they had plenty of incentive to lie. I wonder what Judge Crow thinks about that. It seemed like most, if not all, of the prosecution's witnesses got some sort of deal for cooperating with the state. So that's probably true. I mean, most of them did get something out of it. That happens all the time. Doesn't that muddy the waters? It does, but most prosecutors will tell the jury, we don't find our witnesses in church, we find them in prison. And that's very much true. If you uh, eliminate the scumbags' testimony against other scumbags, you would have a hard time convicting anybody because prosecutors don't choose their witnesses. After all the prisoner witnesses testify, prosecutors call a Louisville captain and corrections officer, an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper, and two pathologists who performed the autopsies on the victims. Once again, we can't forget the victims in all this. I'm sure there are family members and friends out there who are still grieving their loss. Although, strangely, according to Keith, Herman, Bob, and Judge Crow, none of the victim's family members ever came to court. During that trial, there wasn't one representative of any of those deceased inmates that showed up. That struck me as pretty odd. Nobody cared about the five guys that got killed. 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. The prosecution rests their case on June 27th. That afternoon, the defense begins presenting theirs. They call four inmates who testify in the early hours of the uprising. They saw Keith out on the rec yard. The times varied, but they said he was out there and he looked normal. One witness is asked if there was blood or dirt on Keith. He says no. Then they call William Gino Washington. He was in that K-block cell and witnessed the murder of Dennis Weaver. He testifies that Keith had nothing to do with Dennis Weaver's death. Then a bombshell drops. During cross-examination, prosecutor Bill Anderson says they have an audio-taped interview with Gino Washington that contradicts his entire testimony. Here's Keith's defense attorney, Herman Carson. Excuse my language, but Bill Anderson was so excited, I thought he was going to piss himself. Judge Crow asks for the jury to leave the courtroom. Then the roughly 20-minute tape is played. On that tape, and it's all in the trial transcripts, Gino Washington is heard saying Keith and another guy ordered Dennis Weaver's murder. What were you feeling and experiencing when you realized that they had an interview that was basically impeaching your witness? Well, that was fundamentally unfair. They should have disclosed that. He had been listed as a witness back then. I believe their view is, oh, we didn't know it was going to be exculpatory, you know? And which my view is that's a bunch of bullshit. When the jury is brought back in, the prosecutor asks Gino Washington about this. Washington says in that taped interview, investigators at the time were trying to make him point the finger at Keith and the other guy. 
He says he lied and told them what they wanted to hear because at the time, Gino was scheduled to appear in front of the parole board and investigators told him that they wouldn't let him go until he was, quote, off investigation. And today, in court, he says he's now telling the truth. And here's another thing I find curious. William Bowling, the main guy who strangled Dennis Weaver, never took the stand for the prosecution or the defense. Remember, the state says that Keith made William Bowling kill Dennis Weaver. So it seems like it would have been a no-brainer on the part of the prosecution to have him take the stand and point the finger at Keith, right? So why didn't they call him? Maybe the prosecution thought they didn't need his testimony. Or maybe they learned something that made calling him too risky and could jeopardize their case. Back to Gina Washington. After he testifies, the defense calls their last witness to the stand, Keith Lamar. I decided early on that I was going to take the stand, something that I was advised not to do by everybody. Uh, you know, but I was determined to participate in every aspect of this process. Here's Keith's defense attorney, Bob Toy. I believe that by calling him, it was not going to hurt his case. Okay, It usually does, but we had a client who was very unusual in reference to being articulate, intelligent. We thought he could handle cross-examination, and he did as best he could. We were hoping it would help. Could be a last measure of just presenting a human being to a jury. On the stand, Keith maintains his innocence. He says he had nothing to do with the killings in L Block. And in K Block, he admits to lying to investigators that he was asleep when Dennis Weaver was killed. But he did not order Weaver's murder, nor did he take part in it. And he has no words to justify why he didn't stop it. On cross-examination, Prosecutor Seth Teeger asks Keith about the testimonies given by the state's witnesses. Keith says they all lied. Near the end, Seth Teeger asks Keith, quote, Do you like snitches? Keith responds, quote, I don't trust snitches. Then Teeger asks, What does it feel like to have the power to order someone's death? Keith answers, I couldn't tell you. I don't know if I've ever asked you this before, but did you ever have an issue or beef with snitches at Lucasville? No, I, I never had a beef with But, you know, I, 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 I mean, I don't want to be around somebody who I can't trust. So it wasn't that uh, blanket thing that I don't like snitches. I mean, I, uh, who, um, who do, you know, like snitches? Do I? Yeah. Um... No, no, but not liking them and wanting to hurt them are two different things. Well, I'm just answering your question. The leader of the quote unquote death squad, which they said you were, this person led this group of men cell to cell to kill the snitches. That is an intense hatred for snitches, right? I don't know that it actually had to be an intense hatred. But it has to be something that, as an organization, whatever gang that you belong to, it's an organized thought. 
know, it's a blanket thought, or, you know, cultivate, because on a personal level, it's about this person snitched on me that I was, I had drugs in my cell or whatever the case may be. This don't, that doesn't automatically, you know, rise to the level of you killing five people. You know, it, it was a blanket thing. And the only way you have a blanket thing like that is, is it part of the, the codes of the game that you are in. I wasn't in the game. And see, that's the thing that, you know, people don't, you know, that's what I'm talking about, the nuance. He's saying that I came in and, you know, as some kind of, you know, you know, you know, long, you know, uh, 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 valent and, you know, on this, you know, crusade to rid the prison of snitches. But you don't do that as an individual. Why would I take on that as, as a 23-year-old? I mean, that didn't happen. On June 29th, after seven days of testimony, the case goes to the jury. For this phase of the trial, they will be sequestered. How did you feel as the jury was about to go into deliberations? I didn't feel hopeful. There was no defense I can really put up. Um, obviously, I wasn't on the outside, so there's nothing I can really say about it but that the witnesses who testified on my behalf, the only thing they can say is that they saw me on the yard. So it was a lame defense compared to what the state put forth. They put forth a, a, a cohesive argument and suppressed anything that refuted what they witnesses testified to. <laughs> it was laughable, you know, um, although I didn't laugh. The next day, the jury comes back with its verdict. Keith is found guilty on all charges. Do I think they had enough to convict them? No, I don't. These people, you know, you know, the people, they were just chopping at the bit, you know, to, to return the guilty verdict. And it wasn't just about the ride. You got to remember also that, you know, this was right when O.J. Simpson, you know, uh, murdering two white people in California, allegedly. You know, the Rodney King, all that happened. You know, all that stuff was swirling around at that time. You know, so it was a real racial climate where this this happened, you know. And, and so, you know, all those things, I think, ultimately meditated against me. You know, I was guilty the moment I demanded the trial. Next, jurors will hear the mitigating evidence, or evidence that makes the case for sparing Keith's life and not giving him the death penalty. Called to testify are some of Keith's family members and two experts who talk about the intense challenges Keith faced during his childhood, especially the mental and physical abuse at the hands of his stepfather, Larry, and the emotional unavailability of his mother, and how all of that and more led Keith, like so many others who grow up in a similar situation, to be vulnerable to adopting a new set of values, like the values of the streets. On July 7th, the jury returns its sentencing recommendation. They unanimously recommend the death penalty for four of the murders and life with the possibility of parole after 30 years for the fifth. But it's not over just yet. Judge Crow has the ultimate say on whether or not he'll take the jury's recommendation. So on August 21st, all reconvene one last time. This day is like no other. 
particular day, I came out into the courtroom and it's just full, standing room only, all white people. Nobody had came to the trial. They had all this evidence, had all these witnesses. Nobody gave a damn about that. You know, but somebody was about to be sentenced to death. You know, this was a lynching. And I'm telling you, I came out in this courtroom and it was just, it was a small courtroom, probably, you know, you know, with a OCD capacity, probably about 30 people, 40 people, not, you know, but it felt like it was like 200 people crammed into this place. They showed up. They showed up. Leah, I'm talking about, it was the most unnerving thing. I, I'm, it was the most evil thing I've ever felt or seen in, in my life because I knew why they were there. Before Judge Crow renders his decision, Keith is allowed to address the court. Here is part of his videotaped statement, the only part of the trial that was recorded. The quality isn't good, but I think it's important to hear Keith back in 1995, just moments before he's about to learn his fate. By the way, you can go to the Real Killer Podcast Instagram page to watch this video. Every man must be held accountable for his action. I prove that. 1988, I was caught stealing some jewelry by a jewelry store. Because of my action, I paid guilty for a sentence of two years imprisonment. In 1989, I killed a man by the name of Kenyon Collins. Because of my actions, I paid guilty. I was sentenced to a term of 18 years of life imprisonment. 1994, I was charged with nine counts of aggravated murder, death penalty specification. But because my action that I killed and I placed my life in the hands of a prosecutor. Every man must be able to come, except the man who has a crime. Shield of unjust system. I don't want to sound like I'm disrespecting anyone or even disrespecting myself. I'm not willing to sacrifice myself or belittle myself or uh, bow to something that I don't believe in. I don't believe in what took place in this courtroom. Prosecuting here, everything, being coached, witnesses, and every man would be held accountable for certain law. Apparently, Keith's statement makes no impact on Judge Crow because moments later, he upholds the jury's recommendation and sentences Keith to death. Here's Judge Crow. I was nervous and didn't want to do it. And that's a pretty, uh, to me, I thought I'd have no trouble, but when it actually came down to it, it bothered me. He was a gentleman, and uh, I kind of liked him, actually, put that one. And that's what made it hard to render the verdict that I did. I like Keith. I'm curious, you don't have to accept the jury's recommendation for the death penalty, right? You could choose. That's right. So why, why did you? Because... The aggravating circumstances were certainly outweighed the mitigating uh, situation. Uh, I mean, when you get involved in killing five people, uh, that's pretty aggravating to me. And you believed in his guilt. You still believe in his guilt. Yes, I do. In 2011, Judge Crow retired, citing issues with his health. According to the Athens News, there were rumors that the Ohio Supreme Court's Office of Disciplinary Counsel had been looking into Judge Crow's performance on the bench. 
when a representative for the disciplinary council was asked whether or not Judge Crow was the subject of any sort of investigation, he said he would not comment. I read that there were some rumors about the Ohio Supreme Court's office. The disciplinary council was looking at your at your record. Can you tell me anything about that? Would have nothing to do with my conduct of the uh, any trial. Okay. But yes, they 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 did. Uh, I had a couple of office employees that tried to get me in trouble, which nothing came of it. But uh, nothing to do with any uh, case I had before or after uh, or any case. Nothing to do with any of my judicial decisions that I could think of. The Athens News said that they were looking at your performance on the bench. Well, they were looking after my conduct, and uh, but it had nothing to do with any rulings that I made uh, in reference to any major trial, let's put it that way. <laughs> what it was, was, if you want to know the delegate part about it, was that the commissioner's wife, uh, might have had a crush on me once upon a time, and a commissioner uh, <laughs> started that. Uh, and he's the one that told the papers about the big investigation of uh, the judge. It, it was bad publicity. I mean, they, they didn't have any charges or anything. They said he's big investigations, what it amounted to. So, but it didn't have anything to do with uh, my rulings that, uh, or being, being prejudiced against anybody or anything like that. When I tell Keith that I spoke with Judge Crow, I'm sure he said it's a fair trial and everything, huh? Oh well, yes. Um, oh, that's what he said. That yeah. the evidence was overwhelming. Yeah, he also said that he liked you. You know, I'm not. I mean, I'm not laughing like you know, like I'm enjoying what you're saying. This shit is absurd, man. It's just like. <laughs> These fucking people, man, you know, my God, man, it's just too much, man. You know, and, and this person, you know, to sit somewhere, wherever the fuck he's sitting at right now, Judge Crow, I'm, I'm referring to, and say that he really liked me, you know, that he, you know, you know, you know, I don't, you don't imagine how many times I've heard shit like that for somebody who just put my toothbrush in their ass or, or you do my mail in the toilet. You know what I mean? And the same person want to talk to you about, you know what I mean, about your family, how your mother doing. You know, these fucking people. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Physically, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm already back. I'm, I'm in the courtroom back in 1995, sitting in this courtroom. I'm just envisioning this shit. I came in this courtroom as a defendant. We wasn't friends. And sit down and exchange words. Sit there and listen and watch him fuck me over. That's and he liked me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, what courtroom you was in? We wasn't in no fucking picnic, sitting in no motherfucking restaurant, sharing a meal. You was fucking me out my life. You was taking my life. You know what I mean? I, I get mad because, you know, I, I take this shit personal because, you know, how can I not? Here's Keith's attorney, Bob Toy. We did the best we could with what we had, is what what I believe. I gave it my whole heart, and I know Herman did too. I have a picture of Keith, myself, Herman, 
and our intern, Molly, waiting for the death verdict. It sits uh, across from me in a little counter, and I put it up there, front and center. Why? Oh, I've used that many times. I said, hey, you don't have to listen to what I say. And if you want to go to trial, we'll go to trial. And I say, this guy went to trial. And sometimes we give people advice they don't listen to. And sometimes not for a good reason. Keith had a good reason. His reason is he said he didn't do it. And, and uh, you know, over the years, you look back at it going, oh, my God, I don't think they had enough evidence. And I don't think he did do it. So that's where you're at. Um, and should they have convicted him based upon what they had and the manner in which they did it? No. I reached out to prosecutors Seth Teeger and Bill Anderson to see if they'd be willing to talk with me. Seth Teeger called me back and left me this message. Hey, Mr. Rothman, this is Seth Teeger from the Hamilton County Prosecutor. I was one of the prosecutors on the Keith Lamar um, Lucasville prison riot case. Um, I have talked to Bill Anderson, who's also a Hamilton County Prosecutor, and we were co-prosecutors on that case, um, on the Keith Lamar case. Anyway, um, we are not interested in um, getting involved in um, your investigation or podcast. Um, so anyway, I was just calling to let you know that. Um, thanks for the call. And um, anyway, that's it. Thanks. I'm going to keep trying. But you should know that Seth Teeger did talk to The New York Times for a February 2022 article they did on Keith and his case. In it, Teeger said this, quote, We turned over everything that we were required to under the rules of discovery. To Bill and I, he is extremely guilty. He is where he belongs, on death row. I did speak on the phone with Sergeant Howard Hudson, who testified at Keith's trial and was very hands-on in the investigation for the Ohio State Highway Patrol. At first, he agreed to participate. Then he started following me on Instagram. A couple of weeks later, he texted me this, quote, I'm sorry, I've changed my mind and no longer wish to participate. By the way, the real killers at Lucasville are the ones we convicted. So with the trial over, Keith is transported to a prison in Mansfield, Ohio. On my ride from Lucasville to Mansfield, I think I just doubled down in terms of my attitude that I would resist this whole process. And I didn't know, obviously, what shape that would take, but I knew that I was going to fight. When they brought me off the van that day and was about to walk me to the death row unit, I stopped walking. And I don't know what made me do that. It just seemed like if I was going to fight them, that I might as well start right now. And I just stopped walking and, you know, the guards, you know, everybody, they seemed confused. Like, why aren't you walking? And, uh, you know, I'm innocent. Next time on The Real Killer. But I, I tell you what, if I one day find myself strapped to a gurney, that these people would not be able to call it justice, would not be able to say that we did right by this person. A chance at a new trial goes up in flames. I remember him walking past me on his way out of the courtroom. I mean, he said, good luck, Keith. And for Keith, 
Desperate Times call for desperate measures. It puts you through all this bullshit. And you and if you get angry, see, that's proof that he's an animal. No, that's proof that I'm a human being, that this shit hurt, that the shit you're doing to me is painful. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Elisa Rosen for AYR Media. Written by Leah Rothman. Executive producer, Paulina Williams. Senior associate producer, Jill Pesheznik. Coordinator, George Fom. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio engineering by Anna Mulishan. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Maya Howard. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.